0: Hello and welcome to The History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson brought to you with the support of the King's College Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode you are what you do karma. It's the rare philosophical concept that inspires dance music. You won't find Meditations on Determinism in the back catalogue of Kool and the Gang, or Madonna setting Reductionist Theory of Mind to a disco beat. Every rule has an exception, though, and in this case we find one in the shape of Culture Club's 1983 hit Karma Chameleon. Actually, this may be the exception that proves the rule, since a close reading of the lyrics betrays a somewhat shaky understanding of the concept. Singer Boy George complains to his beloved, "'When you go, you're gone forever,' which is very much missing the point. The ancient Indian notion of karma turns precisely on the idea that when we go, we are not gone forever. We will be reborn, and the actions we performed in this life will affect our fate in the next. Unlike Boy George's wardrobe, the consequences of this idea for Indian philosophy and religion can hardly be exaggerated. In this episode, we'll start to see why. The rebirth theory sounds like an optimistic one surely we all feared death and would all welcome the chance to live forever, even if in another form. Well, that's not how many ancient Indians saw things. Their goal was rather to escape from the cycle of rebirth, which is, after all, just as much a cycle of re-death. Since karma was the factor that would tie them to their next incarnation, it seemed that the only way to achieve this liberation was to eliminate all karma from oneself. Extreme measures were taken in pursuit of this goal, The early Jainas devised a practice that has been called immobility asceticism. After years of training, they would attempt to stay completely still until they died from thirst, hunger, or exposure. The point of this was to avoid engaging in any action whatsoever, since all actions, whether good or bad, result in karma. The suffering undergone during the agonizing process of death would cleanse the karma acquired in earlier stages of life. Another group that dissented from the Brahmanic worldview, the Ajivakas, were more pessimistic and thought that the cycle of rebirth was impossible to escape, and that there was no point trying to affect one's karma. To achieve liberation, each individual just has to wait until this cycle of incarnations comes to an end, which the Ajivakas expected to take millions of years. And you thought Indra showed patience. This whole idea of karma and rebirth can be found in the earliest Upanishads, so we may naturally associate it with the Brahmanic tradition rather than these dissident groups. However, there's some debate over the origins of the theory. We don't find it in the Vedas themselves, which, as you'll remember, are the even earlier texts to which the Upanishads are reacting. Some scholars nonetheless assume a Vedic background for the doctrine, while others think it is a kind of interloper into Brahmanic culture. According to this view, the notion of karma had already existed in the northeastern region of India in the valley of the river Ganges. When the upholders of Brahmanism migrated into this area from their homelands in the Indus Valley, they fell under the influence of this older tradition and incorporated karma into their teachings. The debate has turned on some surprising details. For instance, the prevalence of metaphors involving rice to express the cycle of rebirth and use of rice in rituals aimed at manipulating karma. It's been pointed out that this is not a crop local to the Indus region, where farmers instead used wheat, while rice is characteristic of agriculture in the Ganges. This fine-grained historical analysis could support the idea that karma is not really a Brahmanic idea, but was instead part of the indigenous culture further east. Wherever it was born, karma was at the very least, and fittingly enough, reborn in the Upanishads. Let's quote again from the Great Forest Upanishad. Yajnavalkya tell me, when a man dies and his speech disappears into fire, his breath into the wind, his sight into the sun, his mind into the moon, his hearing into the quarters, his physical body into the earth, his soul into space, the hair of his body into plants, the hair of his head into trees, and his blood and seed into water? What happens to that person? Yajnavalkya replied, My friend, we cannot talk about this in public. Take my hand, let's go and discuss this in private. So they left and talked about it. And what did they talk about? They talked about nothing but karma. And what did they praise? They praised nothing but karma. Yajnavalkya told him, A man turns into something good by good action and into something bad by bad action. Here we have one of the hidden teachings that gives the Upanishads their name. In this case, the secret doctrine not fit for public consumption was the doctrine of karma, that we are made into what we are by what we do. In particular, it is the moral quality of what we do that will shape the life we are going to enjoy or suffer. So, here in an early Upanishad, we have the core idea that most people, other than Boy George, associate with karma, be good or else. Your moral decisions in the here and now will bring you reward or punishment down the line, in the next life, if not in this one. But is the theory of karma simply an account of moral retribution? That doesn't sound very appealing, or for that matter, very philosophical. And it gets worse, It's tempting to see the karma theory as a way to justify the inequality of Brahmanic culture, with the Brahmins being rewarded for their good deeds in a former life, while male members of the lower castes, and all women, are being punished for the crimes they must have committed in their own former lives. Thus we find in the Chandogya Upanishad the idea that those who engage in pleasant conduct will enter a pleasant womb, like that of a Brahman, Kshatriya, or Vaishya, whereas those who are of foul behavior will enter the foul womb of a dog, pig, or an outcast. But this would be a reductive and inadequate understanding of karma. The doctrine is in fact a way to affirm human freedom, and to give us a motivation for trying to act well. To see why, it will help to consider two alternative and rival theories. One was held by the unorthodox ascetic Goshala, the leader of the aforementioned Ajivakas, who denied that the cycle of rebirth can be escaped. Goshala held that everything happens exactly as it is predestined to happen by fate, so that human action is ineffective and inconsequential. The Ajivaka tradition did not live on past antiquity as did the other schools of thought we've been discussing, but Goshala's views are described in the recorded dialogues of the Buddha as follows. There is no deed performed by oneself or by others, no human action, no strength, no courage, no endurance or prowess. All beings are developed by destiny, chance, and nature. The cycle of birth and rebirth is measured as with a bushel, with its joy and sorrow and its appointed end. It can neither be lessened nor increased, nor is there any excess or deficiency of it. Just as a ball of thread will, when thrown, unwind to its full length, so fool and wise alike will take their course and make an end of sorrow. So, the Ajivakas denied that we have any responsibility for our actions. In fact, they could be understood to deny that action is possible at all, if to act involves making rational choices. How, then, should one live if the idea that reason can be the guide of human action is a myth? Goshala thought the answer lies in asceticism one should withdraw as far as possible from the pretense of action at all, and instead live as a renunciate and forest dweller. This ascetic lifestyle was embraced especially by those Ajivakas who claimed that their eons of waiting were finally over, and that in their present lives they were experiencing the last of their many incarnations. Precisely the opposite conclusion was drawn by another group, the materialist philosophers known by the name of Charvaka, Again, their ideas are reported in the Buddhist canon, where they are represented as insisting that there is no good or evil in the world, and that a human is nothing more than flesh and blood. Man is formed of the four elements. When he dies, earth returns to the aggregate of earth, water to water, fire to fire, and air to air, which the senses vanish into space. Four men with the beer take up the corpse and gossip with one another about the dead man, as far as the burning ground... Where his bones turn the color of a dove's wing and his sacrifices end in ashes. They are fools who preach almsgiving, and those who maintain the existence of immaterial categories speak vain and lying nonsense. So, for a Charvaka, there are no reasons to act morally because there are no moral reasons for action. As we'll see in future episodes, this attitude lent itself to a hedonist ethic which allowed that deliberative action is possible, but claimed that only one thing can guide our deliberations. Like Madonna, they were living in a material world, and they set their heights on no goal more exalted than pleasure. What is the alternative to ajivaka fatalism and charvaka moral skepticism? It is to think, first of all, that there is such a thing as deliberative action, action governed by reason and reflection. And second, it is to believe that moral considerations should play a role in such deliberation. If one is to counter the doctrines of fate and chance, one needs to show that there are moral motivations for action. That is why the doctrine of karma was taught as a simple and effective solution to a tricky problem. The doctrine requires that a person's own character be his own destiny, and that each action has its appropriate consequences. Those actions that are good, springing from a clear-sighted mind and a virtuous disposition, result in future happiness and well-being. Actions that are bad, deriving from ignorance, greed, and malice, produce only suffering. Of course, if these consequences are actually to make a difference to my choices, I must believe that the results of good and bad actions will affect me and not someone else. To use the Sanskrit terminology, the kartri, or agent of the action, is the same person as the bhaktri, or enjoyer of the result. So, the karma doctrine implies, or perhaps assumes, that the world is governed by justice, with each person guaranteed to reap what he or she sows. This may seem to bring the karma theory closer to a religious conviction, but as we saw in the last episode, it was only gradually that divine oversight was invoked in this sort of cosmic context. In the Upanishads, it appears to be just a brute fact that there is a moral order built into the universe. Only as the tradition develops are divinities made responsible for overseeing the dispensation of justice in light of karmic merit and demerit. In the earlier period, the world is simply presented as a just place, with each person's long-term happiness in proportion to their virtue. The law of karma is one that needs no lawgiver but is this really a way to place morality on firm foundations? It looks more like a naked appeal to self-interest. Each of us is told, you had better behave well since you and you alone will suffer the consequences of your misbehavior. Or, more optimistically, if you want to flourish and be happy, you must behave well. The goal I'm being told to pursue is my own overall long-term happiness. Virtue is a mere instrument for achieving that objective. Of course, it's welcome news that the world is just set up in such a way as to reward the good and punish the bad, with the vicious winding up as dogs and pigs, while the virtuous get a womb with a view upon happiness. But the doctrine appears to give us no reason to exercise genuine altruism, to have moral concern for the interests of others. If I am only trying to optimize my own future well-being, it seems that I am making no effort to further the well-being of others. The Buddha had a simple and brilliant answer to this challenge. He denied that there is any metaphysical distinction between self and others. Concern for others and concern for oneself are thus one and the same. We'll be looking at this Buddhist theory of no-self in more detail later. For now, we just want to note that it reconciles karma with altruism by extending the scope of what can properly be called self-interest. Another objection to the karma doctrine is even more straightforward. It just isn't true that good conduct is the best route to attain happiness. To the contrary, we see regularly that the good suffer and the wicked flourish. It's all too obvious that I can further my own interests by cheating and lying. Of course, things would not turn out well for me if everyone acted that way all the time. But in a world where people generally behave well, the clever and wicked will prosper at the expense of the morally upright it's here that we can see the ethical relevance of an aspect of the doctrine that may seem more at home in religious belief, the doctrine of rebirth or transmigration. If I am worried about not only this life but also the next, that may change my calculations as to what is truly advantageous. It's hardly a winning strategy to secure riches and pleasure through devious actions now if it means I'll be born as a dog next time around but that does not really solve the problem so much as postpone it. How can we be sure that justice will be meted out in the next life for the sins we commit now? We need a guaranteed connection between good action and what is good for the individual. Such a connection is forged in one of the most famous writings of ancient India, the Bhagavad Gita, the dialogue between Arjuna and Krishna embedded within the Mahabharata. On the eve of a mighty battle, the warrior prince Arjuna is racked with doubt. Facing him in the battlefield are not some unknown and nameless enemies, but his own kinsfolk and elders. They are undoubtedly guilty of heinous crimes, and Arjuna has both caste duty and social convention on his side. Yet he cannot persuade himself that it is right to kill his own family members, preferring, he says, the life of a beggar and a mendicant. Krishna intervenes and tries to convince him that he must fight the battle. His advice rejects the kind of instrumental reasoning bound up with the karma theory. Krishna tells Arjuna that any action undertaken out of desire for some result will only lead to further desires. Whatever the outcome of each action, this way of thinking about our choices can end only in suffering. For one can never satisfy all one's desires, and the more one acts with the hope of getting rewards, the more one is liable to disappointment and frustration. As Krishna puts it, from attachment springs desire, from desire is anger born. The goal of the karma theory was to guide one's deliberations and actions by moral considerations in order to achieve long-term benefit. Now Krishna argues that none of this matters, for no matter what goal you choose to desire, you will find only further discontent. How then ought one motivate oneself to act, if not from a desire for the results of the action? Krishna claims that the truly virtuous action is not one that aims at some objective, whether in this life or another, but instead an action free from any desire for any result. Action alone is your proper business, he says, never the fruits it may produce. Let not your motive be the fruit of action. But how do I know which action to perform if not by looking to a cosmic system of just reward and punishment? Simple, one must do that which is natural or proper to oneself, one's svadharma. Krishna says, Hear just how a man perfects himself by doing and rejoicing in his proper work. Thus, the Gita tells us that we must act, but without formulating a desire that would be fulfilled by acting. Krishna's advice to Arjuna is instead to act according to his duty and nature but remain detached from any self-interest in the results of his actions. To act in a way that is true to one's character is to act well. It may still turn out that the consequences as prescribed by the principle of karma will also be good, but one should not be motivated to act by those consequences. With this discussion of karma and the responses it provoked, we've begun to touch on the figures and texts that will occupy us over the coming episodes, the Buddha, Jainism, and the Mahabharata. Varied though their teachings may be, they have in common that they react to the worldview represented by the earliest of the Upanishads, sometimes by accepting and adapting the older ideas, but often by rejecting them. Many of the ideas we'll be examining were born of doubt and resistance directed against the Brahmanic Culture Club. We'll be moving on to these dissident groups soon, but we're not ready to let the Upanishads go and be gone forever. Next time, we'll be joined by an expert on these fascinating texts, Brian Black, for the first of the occasional interviews that will be a running feature here on The History of Philosophy in India.